0: Hello, I'm Matt Chorley. This is the Red Box podcast featuring the best of my Times radio show, Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. On today's show, we discussed the myths of Winston Churchill. We spoke to a school deputy head about his fears that middle class parents will dominate the exam results when they emerge this week. We also talked about hedgehogs. Uh, And why not, frankly? Apparently they're um, not doing very well, despite me seeing lots of them during the lockdown. But for our main bit of the podcast, I've been speaking to David Milliband. Nobody could fail to be moved by the devastating pictures emerging from Lebanon following that massive explosion in Beirut just almost a week ago. I've been speaking to David Miliband, the former Foreign Secretary who quit British politics as a Labour MP seven years ago after being beaten to the Labour Party leadership by his brother Ed, and since then has been running the International Rescue Committee, which is a global humanitarian charity. We discussed how the UK should be responding to an increased number of people trying to reach the UK in unsafe small boats, as well as as what he makes of the Labour Party's new management. But I began by asking him what the situation is like on the ground right now in Lebanon, a city already struggling with the effects of an economic downturn, thousands of Syrian refugees, and coronavirus even before last Tuesday's explosion.
1: We've got about 500 people in Lebanon, a staff, 150 of them, in Beirut. I mean, 98% of them are Lebanese. And I'm afraid it's now accepted as too late to find more people alive, uh, really. But the immediate injuries are being dealt with. The hospitals are in a terrible state. And the desperate need is for cash for people to sustain themselves. Because unless you're on a middle class income, you're really struggling to make ends meet. That's why you're seeing these amazing stories of restaurants feeding a thousand families and things like that. So the the short term need, I would say, is humanitarian aid, which means health, food, cash support, is actually the most powerful way of helping people meet their own needs. Um, There's the COVID uh, challenge, which leads you into, if you like, uh, the short term. So if the emergency is the next week, the short term is the next three months, where COVID um, stabilizing the economy um, and getting, some humanitarian aid to those in greatest need. We, we're focused on the refugees, but not only them. I, I saw a figure that 30% are living on less than $2 a day, which is a desperate uh, situation. And then uh, in the medium term, you've got the political challenge, which is so complicated and so interwoven with the rest of the region. But that's the way it seems to us uh, at the moment, that there is, if there's any silver lining of this unspeakable um, tragedy or crime, it is that the world finally pays attention because honestly, we've been beating our heads against the wall for nine, ten years now during the Syria crisis, saying this is uh, uh, really this is much more worthy of the world's attention than it's received.
0: And it, it tells you something about how complicated the political, the domestic political uh, situation is in Lebanon. That actually dealing with the immediate fallout of the explosion and COVID. Yeah, almost simpler than dealing with the, the, that medium-term problem you were talking about. Uh, in terms of money and cash and the immediate help, Britain is promised, I think, in total so far, it's about £25 million. Is that enough? Would you expect Britain to be doing more?
1: Well, I think that the global response has been too weak. Britain is a good aid donor and um, you, know, you can't just say you want more for Lebanon, Well, what does that mean for South Sudan? And uh, essentially, as long as the UK spends the 0.7%, I think it's a bit unfair to say, well, it's not enough here or not enough there. W- what's undoubtedly true, though, is that the overall needs in Lebanon were not being met last Monday, uh, a week ago, uh, before the uh, explosion hit. You've got an economy in free fall, 80% fall in the value of the uh, currency. You've got 25% of the population who are refugees. Uh, you've got uh, and half a million Syrian kids now living in Lebanon, only 30% of them in school, even before COVID struck. So there's a humanitarian development failure. And I don't want it would be wrong to say that's all the UK's fault, because overall, the UK is a good aid donor. Um, I, I, I think that the the bigger question, though, is why it has to take an explosion like that of last Tuesday to make people realise that countries like Lebanon are not just a threat to their own people. Or the situation is not just a threat to their own people. But we end up with refugee flows into Europe because civil wars in somewhere like Syria don't get managed in the neighboring uh, states, the refugee flows, and then up the people in a state of total desperation uh, go uh, further. So I think that um, if, there is, uh, if there's a criticism of the UK situation, it's that there's been a hiatus over the last few months and, frankly, longer as the government have been thinking since since Boris Johnson became Prime Minister about what to do about DFID, what to do about the Foreign Office, uh, I'm, there's no point arguing about that now. They've decided that they want to merge the two departments. The vital thing is that that doesn't cause a couple of years of agonising bureaucratic rearrangement while needs around the world get worse. Because what I can report to you is that on the front line, the gap between the needs of people in humanitarian distress, whether in Lebanon or Yemen or South Sudan or northeast Nigeria or Afghanistan, those needs are growing um, and they're not being met.
0: Given you, you raised the the merger of DFID into the Foreign Office, was there ever a point when you were Foreign Secretary when you thought this would be better if we didn't have a separate aid department?
1: I can honestly say no. I can honestly say that um, from a, a Foreign Office point of view, you had... Um, actually pretty good alignment in country if I went to any country where there was both a big diffid office and a um, traditional foreign office uh, leadership, you found it working well actually and many other countries i mean it's interesting in the you know living in new york the 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 next biden administration, if there is one is going to be debating what should should we get closer to the to the old british model of having a a diffid. so um I can honestly say to you that um the, uh, of course, people in the Foreign Office say, "Well, you know, it has got more money than we have." But there was a skill set in Diffid that put an emphasis on high impact, high value for money humanitarian and development aid, and there was a political um, effort on the uh, Foreign Office side. Now, one thing actually the Tories did after we left was to have a few years after we left, they had sort of joint ministers and things. Actually, I think that was a pretty good idea. Um, but I, I don't think that the division was a problem. And what's vital is that the new merged department doesn't lose the expertise of each side.
0: You mentioned the way that the Syria crisis creates refugees who spread to countries like uh, Lebanon and ultimately end up on our shores in the UK. That figures out over the weekend showing that more than 4,000 migrants have now reached the UK in 2020 by crossing the English Channel in small boats. Uh, what do you think? I'm not sure if you've seen. There's some photos in the papers over the weekend showing a heavily pregnant woman who landed on a beach in Kent. What do you th- think when you see those images of people arriving in the in the UK in small boats like that?
1: Your, your first or is for the people concerned. I mean, you've you've got to be desperate to pay three thousand pounds to a people smuggler to get into a overcrowded dinghy to try and get across the channel. We know that not just from the testimony of people um, coming across to the UK, but frankly, we know that from our International Rescue Committee work in Greece. Uh, We know that elsewhere. We know that from the southern border of the United States, people put themselves in the hands of coyotes, they're called in the US. And so you've got to be desperate to do that. You've got to think you have that the risk of death, which is real, is worth a chance worth uh, taking. And... So I think that there is a an immediate sense, you know, there but for the grace of God go 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 us. I mean, it's a, a sense of desperation. You have a feeling of exploitation because they are being exploited by the people uh, smugglers. Um, I also just checked that, that our experience around the world and we, we're, we're a global humanitarian agency in 40 countries now. We've got about 13,000 employees and 17,000 uh, volunteers who are often refugees themselves. Um, and we're also the largest refugee resettlement agency in the U.S. What marks out um, this is not the choice of whether you get asylum seekers or not, whether you get refugees or not. The, the issue is, do you have them arriving in an orderly, legal, safe way, or do you have them arriving in an illegal, disorderly, unsafe way? And to do that, two things, to, do, to get to the uh, safe and orderly, two things are absolutely key. One is international coordination. And um, I have to say that, Um, it's slightly ironic to hear some of the calls for minimum standards across europe um, uh, proper coordination of asylum policy that's precisely what the eu is legislating on at the moment and we're obviously not part of that so we're having to reinvent that uh, as the uk but the second thing is interesting absolutely key to whether you have this situation under control or not is whether you process the asylum claims in an efficient way just to give you an example in the us it takes If you arrive from the southern border now, you might not get a court case for four years. There's 1.2 million people in the immigration court backlog. In Germany, it takes eight or nine weeks to process an asylum claim. That's why they've got through those one and a half million claims contrasted to the 4,000 you referenced in the UK, the one and a half million German claims. Now in the UK, only 25% of asylum claims, according to the latest figures, were decided within six months. And the Home Office has abandoned the six month target for processing of asylum claims. And all of our technical experience as a humanitarian aid agency, uh, we don't say, you know, everyone should automatically be waved through. We say every case should be properly done. And if you don't do them in an efficient, fast and fair way, then you store up problems. And I think that's a big part of this now.
0: Priti Patel tweeted a few days ago, I know that when British people say they want to take back control of our borders, this is exactly what they mean, referring to the number of boat crossings. How do you feel about all of this being sort of caught up in... Uh, you know, the, the the plight of people who are clearly very desperate, as you say, trying to cross the Channel in small boats, being sort of caught up in the what appears to be an ongoing political battle over the merits of Brexit?
1: I think that um, taking back control is um, put under the microscope here, because uh, the first sentence is take back control, the second sentence is we've got to get the French to do more. And so you're immediately into a reality of the modern world that presuming that no one is suggesting that we should retreat behind our own borders, become wholly self-sufficient and declare autarky from the rest of the world, you're reliant on other people doing things. And so I think that um, there's some scrutiny that's required there. I think the deeper point that you're making is a profound one, actually, because there is a danger that the people who are seeking to escape from persecution and I mean not everyone is in that situation but there's a lot of unsolved conflicts around the world the people who are fleeing for their lives the great danger that they face is that they get dehumanized and they get dehumanized in a way where the statistics are used to make it seem like there is a quote-unquote invasion when the truth is I mean I think many people will be surprised to know this 85 percent of the world's forcibly displaced people so refugees they're in poor countries not rich countries i mean bangladesh has got one and a half million rohingya from uh, myanmar Uh, there are one and a half million south sudanese in um, kenya you've got poor poor and low in lebanon we were talking about one and a half million syrian refugees in lebanon it's a country of only five million people Um, it's poor and lower middle income countries that are bearing the greatest burden greatest responsibility maybe is a better word Um, for handling refugee crisis. And as long as there is a neglect of diplomacy, um, we're going to see more of these people fleeing because um, if you just think about the Middle East that we started this interview with, it's not just Lebanon in uh, crisis. You've got Lebanon, you've got Libya, you've got Yemen, uh, you've got Syria, you've got Iraq, never mind the unresolved Palestinian issue. And so I see as a humanitarian aid leader uh, the symptoms of this, but as a someone who used to be in politics in the Foreign Office, I see diplomacy stalled. I see a political vacuum in which all sorts of bad actors are um, moving in. And that leads to uh, people taking desperate measures of their own.
0: If you like what you're hearing, you can listen to the whole of my Times Radio show. Either listen back on the Times Radio app, or you can listen live Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. We'll have more on the episode after this, I want to um, ask you as well about this idea of uh, the Australian approach. Where well, they they stopped boats from uh, Indonesia re- reaching Australia. Some people in the UK talking about this is what we need: a tough approach, send in the navy, uh, you know, stop boats even reaching British waters. How do you feel about that? Well, the
1: more desperate, the more the the, the bigger the wall, the more desperate the measures to get around them. And remember the distance, I haven't got it off the top of my head, but the distance from um, uh, Australia to Indonesia is many times that of the distance from UK to, from Dover to Calais. Um, We're talking about much more than 26 um, miles. And so I think that um, uh, cooler heads need to prevail if the UK is to sustain an effective response as well as a humane response. Because uh, the law of the sea that says that anyone who's in distress needs to be picked up is there for a reason and if you're not careful you end up saying well pushing them back leave to one side even the question of whether or not pushing quote unquote pushing a boat is a, is a safe way of uh, doing this our period in government i was never in the home office but the you, you'll know well these um kind of uh, mini crises have occurred before and they get addressed only when the French and the UK side attack them together. And I think that offers a far better way of dealing with this than a unilateral model. And the Australian model, remember, that theirs is actually about processing people in offshore islands. That's had massive problems, um, not just for the people themselves, but for for, for Australia as well. So um, I, I think it makes more sense, it's more effective as well as more humane to actually tackle the problem rather than just try and shunt it aside.
0: Obviously, this has all been bound up, particularly in the UK, particularly around Brexit, in legitimate concerns about immigration. You've had, uh, whether it was you know Nigel Farage using these boats landing as a as a as a way of criticising the government and trying to restoke stoke uh, concern about uh, immigration. But it, you, you know, you go back in the past, you had uh, Ed Miliband had his control on immigration mugs and and or, you know the, the the it became a hostile environment basically around immigration, which which it feels like it's making the country hostile towards people who are just incredibly desperate, fleeing war-torn countries. Actually,
1: the figures are that the country is becoming less hostile, which is interesting. But look, you you say legitimate concerns. Also, uh, it it seems to me that any country has got to be an effective organisation of its borders, who comes in, who goes out, and there are different choices about uh, immigration policy. That's fine. Um, there are international obligations in respect of refugees who are people who are fleeing the um, fleeing crisis, and there are different obligations, and I defend that because the moral claim of someone who's fleeing for their life is different from the moral claim of someone who wants a better life. When we came into government in the late 90s, 1997, I know this it seems like prehistory to someone like you, but um, there was, a, <laughs> it, it, you know, this, this wasn't the Napoleonic era, um, the... Uh, um, that there was an unbelievable mess that we uh, inherited in 1997 about uh, people from uh, Kosovo and from the former Yugoslavia. What happens when issues of immigration and issues of refugees get confused is it's bad for both. I do, however, have to point out that it's to hear that Nigel Farage is attacking the current government on their um, management of the issue reminds me of illegitimate use of the immigration issue, which, remember, before the... Uh, Uh, before the Brexit referendum, you had Nigel Farage standing in front of posters claiming that there were hordes of people ready to arrive into the UK. And that was shown to be completely untrue, never mind the claim that 80 million Turks were going to arrive. And so my point would be, there's a legitimate debate about immigration, but there's illegitimate use of people as political battering rams. And uh, look, in the US, uh, it's now the situation, it seems incredible to say this, because uh, the contrast with Britain is so strong, there hasn't been a single piece of immigration legislation in the US since 1986. That's why they're in a mess. That's why they've got 11 million undocumented people. Now, you can make a good argument the UK's got the opposite problem. It's had, a, goodness knows how many, 10 or 20 immigration bills since 1986. And um, it, it, often there's a new bill before the old one is properly uh, implemented. But I would say that um, one of the lessons of the COVID crisis that I think has been heartwarming is people recognize that immigrants uh, give to the country, don't just take from the country. And actually, it, as I say, we're a refugee resettlement agency in the US. We've got figures showing that refugees pay more in taxes than they take in welfare benefits uh, when they arrive. If you've fled for your life, my God, you know the value of freedom and you're determined to make the most of it.
0: Just before we move on, do you think that, you mentioned Nigel Farage, but do you think pretty Patel is, uh, in your words, using uh, people as political battering rams? No, I
1: was- Trying to say no. that, and I'm not, and I'm not trying to make a I mean, I have got to be, you know, of course I've got strong uh, views, but I I'm, I'm careful about uh, about this. You know, she's got her job to do. There's, there's, there is an official opposition. Fortunately, they're doing their job better than they were in the recent past. And um, I, I wasn't uh, having a pop at her.
0: Well, um, you, as you've brought up the opposition, I'm I suppose the first question is how how do you think Keir Starmer is doing compared to his predecessor?
1: That's, that's a very low bar uh, it, because <laughs> his predecessor led him led, led us to the worst defeat since 1935. So um, or 1931, in fact. Um, no, I think he's doing everything that can be asked of him uh, in very difficult uh, circumstances. Now, the, the 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 tragedy, the trauma, is that we're starting from an unbelievably low base. Um, I actually gave an interview to the Times in 2016. Um, maybe it was early twenty. So no, it must have been 2016, saying, I feared that we were further from power than the, in the 1930s. And sadly, that has proven to be uh, true. But I think he's doing everything that's asked of him. He's got. He's, he's brought talented people in. He's making sure that talent is really um, brought forth. Uh, but I think he recognises it's a very long road and every country needs an effective opposition as well as a, a strong government. And um, I think that... Um, putting himself into it I think it's hard in covid though I think that it's it makes it really it's one thing to settle in for 3 or 4 months but this is going to be a marathon this 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 covid nightmare I'm finding that with running my own organization and um it's a long this is a long slog and I think that that changes politics in a in a pretty fundamental ways
0: um, do you think he can win the next election yeah look it,
1: you, you've, you've got to start with that. Um, it's a very long road and 125 seats, which is what we need, 124 seats, is, a, is an enormously challenging um, uh, sort of mountain that he's been left. You know, there are huge unresolved issues still around the British political landscape. So why, why, why say uh, it's impossible? What I think he's right to do, uh, uh, and which probably I can say in a more stark term than he can, is that he has been left a mountain the party was, was effectively rendered unelectable uh, by 2019.
0: Obviously, one of the things that Keir Starmer is dealing with at the moment is the fall of the, the fight that the Labour Party still seems to be having about an election that happened three years ago, and this idea that, that Jeremy Corbyn would have won the 2017 election if only it weren't for, for people within his party. Do you believe that's right?
1: This is a pure wrecking tactic from uh, Jeremy Corbyn and the Corbynites. Uh, denial after four successive defeats is a route to more defeats. And we learned that after 1992, we got out of denial and we won in 97 and actually we won three elections on the trot. And if we don't really understand that when people got a, a look at Labour in 2017, we couldn't beat the worst Tory campaign in history, 750,000 votes we were behind. And then when people got the full measure of Jeremy Corbyn in 2019, he led us to the worst election defeat uh, since the 1930s so it's a wrecking tactic and I hope people understand it for what it is
0: and legally I've got to ask you if you'll ever consider returning to British politics obviously
1: (laughs) legally I've got to give or I don't know about legally or illegally but I've always given exactly the same answer which is that I always try and decide my professional commitments where I can do best service to my values consistent with my family obligations and all personal circumstances so um you know i I still feel very proud to be British. I still feel i mean sometimes some of the politics in America makes me feel more British and more european um because um this is a different political spectrum uh here um so i I don't want to get into the ruling in ruling out, but there's a new generation that 's still- I want to see them doing well, not badly.
0: Uh, just finally, um, just to try and uh, show that there is some hope, particularly uh, in Lebanon and wider Middle East. one of the projects? What I was, one you're going to be speaking to. You, I read quite a lot about. Is that you're working with the Muppets with Sesame Street? Tell me about. Yes. Tell me what you've been doing with Sesame Street.
1: <laughs> um, you're not saying you're a Muppet, so tell me about. No, I, I I resisted they, the temptation to say from, from
0: the Muppets to the Labour Party. No, I didn't do any of that. I will do any of that.
1: Um, So this is quite uh, exciting. I mean, things in the U.S. do take on a scale. So there is the MacArthur Foundation. They announced a $100 million prize to tackle one of the world's great problems. We teamed up with the Sesame Workshop, who are an offshoot of uh, Sesame Street, and we put in a $100 million bid to uh, address what's called uh, toxic stress, which is effectively trauma among uh, refugee children in the Middle East um, uh, from the Syria war and also children inside Syria and we pledge to use the in-person services that the International Rescue Committee specializes in with the digital services that Sesame Street has uh, pioneered around the world. We're helping one million um, displaced people and kids in war conditions in the Middle East as well as seven or eight million kids around the rest of the region by TV and we're trying to help them rebuild their lives because our mission is a helping people survive, recover, and regain control of their lives. And it's it's just incredibly, um, not just endearing, but exciting, to see the way uh, people crave human contact and can uh, gain trust and strength from human support. And that's what we're seeing in the work we do. It's very scientifically research-based. I mean, it's been thrown into um, a bit of a torpedo from the COVID situation. But I think that it's really, um, it is a sign of hope and it's a sign that you shouldn't give up. And I always say to people, people sometimes say to me, what gives you strength? And what gives me strength is that while the people who are our clients are strong, courageous and are able to smile, what right do we have to stop doing so?
0: Well, ending on a slightly more optimistic note there, David Mediband speaking to me from New York where he's based with the International Rescue Committee Charity. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box podcast. Uh, you can now listen back to my whole show on the Times radio app, where you can also now listen to all of the Times podcasts, including Red Box 2. Make sure you subscribe and review at the Red Box podcast wherever you listen. But for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye.